0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
0: Episode 111, The Paradox.
1: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone
0: who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Katie Talento. Katie is an epidemiologist, a consultant, and has spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. as a consultant for five U.S. senators, think tanks, and also briefly for the Trump administration. This is a great conversation we're going to have about what she does with the consulting work right now, which is unbundling insurance plans. So basically right now, When you get a traditional insurance plan, it's going to include pharmaceuticals, ER visits, hospitalizations, surgeries, imaging, sort of everything you can think of with the traditional insurance. But what she does is she actually unbundles this for employers, lets them self-fund their insurance, and saves a significant amount of money because it turns out the bundling actually loses money and it removes the incentive for the insurance companies to control costs, which, as we know, is one of the major problems with healthcare right now and with the pricing. Also, because of her extensive experience within the federal government, working with think tanks, the CDC, and the like, we're going to discuss the current pandemic, the government's response, how it's failed, what should be done differently, and sort of our general impression of whether public health officials are doing the right thing, the wrong thing, if we really even know what we're doing. And I think you'll find this really fascinating discussion, someone with significant insight into how the government works and the agencies, and she'll even go over a little bit about what she thinks should be done differently as far as the future pandemics. Hopefully, there aren't any. I'd encourage you to go to the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 111. There you can find links to Katie's business and the other episodes that may relate to today's show. But first, a word from our sponsors. Why pay Uncle Sam more money than you need to come tax time? Good news! You don't have to, but you might need some help from the experts. John McCarthy, co founder of Physician Tax Advisors, and his team of CPAs have a combined total of over 60 years of experience helping physicians save money. They know around the time your taxes are due that has added stress to your already full plate. Get the help you need and save money while you're at it with Physician Tax Advisors. This firm is physician family owned and exclusively works only with physicians to lower their tax bill. By specializing in physician finances, John and his team have helped many physicians with their high student debt decide if they need to file their taxes as married filing joint or separate. We ran the numbers and know working with John just makes sense. Check them out at doctorpodcastnetworkcom CPA. Finally, if you like the show, please be sure to share it with your family and friends. And don't forget to leave a five-star review and a written comment on your favorite podcast player. But without further ado, Katie Talento of KFT Consulting and AllBetter.Health on how we fix healthcare. Oh, and COVID too. Enjoy. All right, welcome back. I'm here with my new friend, Katie Talento, who is kind of the jack of all trades here. She's at KFT Consulting and AllBetter.Health. She's an epidemiologist, licensed health benefits analyst and consultant. She advises organizations, employers, health health plans, deciphering federal health and state health care policy problems. She served in health policy through five U.S. senators and most recently was uh, one of the head health care policy analysts for the domestic health policy, care policy team uh, for President Trump. I guess we we're going to talk about a little bit of healthcare and the state of the world here in the United States. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Paradox and the Doctor Podcast Network.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. It's funny. It's like you're what's the opening question when you uh, when you interviewed Ben Franklin? Like, you know, what do you do? <laughs> it seems like you do about everything, and you've kind of been been everywhere. So it's actually hopefully kind of a wide ranging conversation. I, let's just talk about the U.S. healthcare system. So this this show focuses primarily on the U.S. medical system. And the problems, which, you know, there are one or two, right? Um, mm-hmm. So when you look at our system, I feel like, you know, many ways, uh, the system is a real has a real problem. It feels like we're just slowly circling a drain, right? It just kind of gets worse and worse. Solutions that are brought forth actually cause the, the circling to go quicker, more, you know, more quickly. And uh, we don't seem to have any really good policy prescriptions to get out of this. But how would you just describe the system we're in? How do we fix it? And then is there another... St- country that maybe has a similar system to us? Because, you know, we're always trying to find comparable healthcare systems like, oh, we, if we were just like Canada or if we we're just like Australia or something like that. Are there other countries with a sort of our experience or, you know, we're maybe 20 miles from where they are now and, you know, we can get a better idea where we're going?
1: Yeah, that is a big question. Um, I think you're right that healthcare has been broken a very long time and, um, you know, when I was growing up, insurance was pretty affordable. You know, that was in the 80s. I don't want to age myself too much, but that was in the eighties. And um, you know, healthcare was affordable. I remember getting out of college and I had like a BCBS plan that was a hundred bucks and it was totally doable. And deductibles were in the hundreds and not the thousands. And something has dramatically changed. And it used to be that all the fights we had in healthcare were about um you know, they were about coverage. Because once you had coverage, you were okay. And you were gonna be, the cost beast was sort of tamed if you had coverage. Um, And so, you know, even as recently as 10 years ago when we were having our big Affordable Care Act fights in Washington, coverage was a thing. You know, how many people are gonna have coverage? Who's gonna pay for it? What does it cover? Those were all the fights. Um, Now, of course, most of America is covered and still nobody can afford their health care. So the conversation is now about, whoa, everyone's covered, everyone has Medicaid, Medicare, ACA subsidies, TANF, CHIP, all the private coverage, employer sponsored coverage is supposed to be the gold standard and yet nobody can afford their health care. What is going on? And so now we're starting to see some bipartisan coalescing around I would say more promising, more radical solutions. But because they are more promising, (laughs) the swamp is like rising up out of the um, Everglades, if you will, to try to kill these solutions. And so I don't know if they have any prospects, right? Um, There's only so much a a president, any president can do by executive action. Um, He really needs Congress to take on these special interests. And the special interests, they control a fifth of the economy so yeah. it is next to impossible to take them on and so i you know when i was in government i did everything i could and we, we fought a lot of good fights and made a lot of progress and there are some really good you know kind of jihads that we went on that we won in most recently on price transparency and healthcare, and we just won in court finally a couple of days ago but ultimately i realized this isn't getting fixed in washington there just isn't the political will And um, to take on these very difficult, entrenched special interests. And, you know, we had a saying when I was in government is that the biggest employer in any congressional district is the local hospital. So you start trying to take on hospitals, you're going to have a problem. And we need to take on hospitals. We need to take on health plans and carriers. We need to take on um, certain doctor specialties. We need to take on... Um, all the ambulance providers and the nursing homes and all of it, every, every piece of the, heaven knows PBMs, uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers and, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and that whole chain supply chain for drugs. So you can't do it. It's just not getting done. And I realized, okay, uh, the only way this is going to work when I get out of government is I have to go where the only bright spots are. And that is there are really important success stories going on in the employer space where the employers are saving healthcare one business at a time. And I wanted to be part of that. So, you know, that to me is the bright spot Uh, Washington and health policy writ large is not.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, when I started the show in 2018, I was very pessimistic about the U.S. health system. I mean, I—you look at Washington. I mean, it's obviously dysfunctional. And you, the Affordable Care Act did anything but make healthcare affordable. It didn't solve any problems from a regulatory standpoint. It made them worse. And um, and then I, once I started interviewing more and more people about direct primary care, about um, innovative uh, technology companies, telemedicine, you start seeing people who, despite every hurdle from a regulatory standpoint that's put in in their way, they find ways of delivering care that are meaningful to them, meaningful to their patients. And you see, you see a possibility for like a patchwork solution, one that comes from a market in some way. Right. I mean, that, that strikes me as the way that this is solved to your point that you're not going to have some legislative fix that's going to, you know, napalm the entire system and start over. I mean, that's just not going to happen.
1: That's right. And, you know, the politics of healthcare is always fear driven. And so you, you know, Nobody's going to win elections promising to take healthcare away. You know, people are very, very scared about this one thing more than any other thing. Um, and they are, you know, fear drives everything. So I agree that in America, we're not going to, there's not going to be some radical start from the ground up solution, um, no matter what sort of politicians on both sides promise during campaign season. Um, It's just, there aren't the votes for it. To your point about, well, what country is like us? What country can we even look to? I actually don't think there is one. I mean, there are some countries out there that have done some market-based solutions. Um, I think Chile was one, Singapore, but I would argue no country is like the United States of America. Um, This is like ground zero for all healthcare innovation. And because of that, it must be preserved in a way that other countries don't have to worry about that. we have a responsibility to earth you know (laughs) to 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 not let that innovation and that um all the we're where all the cures are and so we have to make sure that they're still available and they're still being developed and we still have incentives for that and yet we can't gouge our people i mean there's just that we've reached a tipping point on the gouging and um you know when you talk about most people in america the average amount of savings is under $500. And your average deductible is well over that. We're in a situation where we're, that's why we're in the crisis we're in. So to your point about um, sort of a patchwork, sort of glimmers of hope, right? Um, I do think that what you have in a traditional carrier plan, and you know, right now insurance is dominated by Some people call it the five families. Some people call it a cartel or (laughs) oligarchy, but it is five companies. We call them in my business, the Bucas, right? The Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, and Humana. Um, But the the Bucas, if you will, are, they are controlling everything. And their traditional plan takes all the pieces of your health plan and, and, and Brings it in house in some way, so you have a stop loss reinsurance in any typical plan, so that the carrier is protected from extreme risk. You have um, you have a pharmacy solution, right? The PBMs are now buying the plans, or the plans are buying the PBMs. They're all coming in house. You have um, wellness and care management, which is really in house, and it's it's trying to minimize spending by the insurer. So between you know and of course you have your repricing scheme so hospitals and doctors they have list prices how do you get discounts how do you reprice right. those bills so the way these carriers do it is through networks right so there's all these different pieces of a health plan and where i see the hope and what you know we do it all about our health and there are some other colleagues that i have out in the world doing the same thing um, you know we we unbundle that and that's the only way is cuz right now all the incentives in those carrier plans are to all those pieces. We're gonna pay kickbacks amongst each other. We're gonna grow our profits. We're gonna, you know, be the ultimate payers, the patients and the employers, and in many cases the taxpayers, they are, you know, what do they want? What are their goals? Their goals are less money, better care, right? I don't wanna be sick, that's I wanna stay healthy. Um but the incentives for the entire supply chain that is all like intermeshed with corrupt conflicts of interest and kickbacks to each other, their incentives are for that same payer to be sicker and to pay more. When all the incentives are aligned in that direction, that is what will happen. You, you know, it's the like standard economics yeah. line that you get what you pay for and we pay for more sick people doing more stuff to sick people at a higher price. So um, that's what we get more of. The only way to to sort of tame that beast is to unbundle all those pieces and compete them out. And in order to do that, you have to have like a quarterback that is running that show because no HR director knows enough to be able to, to do that themselves. And that's why I think there is hope in some of these unbundled, open, transparent prices where you're using vendors out there, to you're competing for the best price among vendors out there You know, I bring in a a PBM, that PBM isn't owned by my stop loss carrier, my reinsurer, which isn't owned by a wellness vendor or a direct primary care um, practice. Like, they're not, none of them have interests among each other. They're all contracted with the employer. And so they're all trying to make the employer happy. That is what we want. That's what every other industry works. Why can't it work in healthcare? It can't. And it's saving 20 to 40, 50% in year one. I mean, that's how broken healthcare is.
0: It's funny because, you know, generally, if you buy things a la carte, it's way more expensive, right? Like only in healthcare would it be the opposite?
1: Exactly. Exactly right.
0: So uh, so you obviously help people unbundle it. Like, give me an idea for what you offer. I assume you're mainly working with employers, right? That's right. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing about the, the healthcare system, of course, is when you look at the the customers, the patients, actually aren't even in the equation, right? In many ways, they since they they don't have any control because they don't they're not moving any of the money around outside of maybe leaving a job or something, and so it makes it really difficult, I think, to get the right price signals and the right market forces aligned in order that, to get people to behave the way they should and to make the decisions from either end, you know, from either the person selling the product or for the person purchasing it, right? Uh, yes. But as long as you have employers, which I think we're going to for a while anyway what exactly do you do? I mean, you, when you say you unbundle it, what, what exactly does that mean? I guess.
1: Right. So great. Usually I start with trying to figure out, you know, I, I want to build an unbundled plan, usually on direct primary care. Um, if an employer is willing to go there, sometimes they're not, they haven't been educated even enough, or they're not aware of the benefits and the value of direct primary care. And so they don't want to do that, but that's the ideal. We want to build it on direct primary care so that, you know, that doctor doesn't have an incentive just to see my patient as fast as he can or she can and get out quickly. And you know, when primary care is so broken, primary care is the solution to so much, and yet it's so broken in the United States. And so the incentives for primary care physicians right now are to see as many patients as they can and just refer to high cost care, right? I'm gonna, I don't know, I don't have time to know. And so I'm gonna refer you to an MRI. I don't know, I don't have time to know, so I'm gonna refer you to a specialist. So when we get doctors out of that rat race, then we can start to have actual health, actual prevention, actual disease management. And those things are what are, you know, disease management and managing costs all comes down to, we don't want people sick. We don't want people in a hospital. What is it going to take to keep everyone out of a hospital? because that's where everything bad happens with respect to quality and cost. So um, investing a little more in that primary care relationship is critical to a plan. So that's where we start when we try to contract with a direct primary care practice in the area. There are some virtual solutions for employers who have nationwide workforce, which is increasingly more of them in the COVID era. And you, you you can also have direct contracts with Uh, primary care practices all over the country for a large employer it's easy to do it's not hard Um, direct primary care practices are springing up more and more every day so that's the foundation then you want to have a claims processor essentially so when when a large employer says that they offer their workers a blue cross plan what they really mean is that they have hired blue cross to write checks to providers doctors and hospitals out of their out of the employer's bank account That's what we mean when we say that a big company is self-funded or um, self-insured. It really means they're paying all the bills, but Blue Cross is writing the checks. Um, So Blue Cross has no incentive to make sure that the bills are appropriate, that there's no price gouging, that, you know, who who are they loyal to? Blue Cross's main product is their network of physicians and facilities. So if they don't have that, they have nothing. So their main client, if you will, isn't the employer who's whose claims they're processing it's keeping the doctors and the hospitals happy so they have no incentive to really become aggressive on on bill pushback right that's inappropriate care that's five times the medicare rate we're not paying you know um you're doing a spine surgery before you've done any physical therapy like that that's just not their incentive they have no incentive to do that and so we want to get a claims processing entity that is not one of these carriers, and who aren't the same people that are selling you the network and selling you the physician access. So we just get people that are really good at processing claims, and so we'll we'll have we'll have a vendor out there, a third party administrator is what they're called, right? We'll we call them TPAs, and we'll compete a TPA for a TPA for an employer. Who's going to give us the best deal? Who has the best tech platform? Who has the best customer service when people call? Um, that's a, So now, now the employer is just getting who does the best audits of bills um, when they come in. And so we're actually thinking about what do I want out of my claims processor, and I'm going to compete for that, what I want. I want lowest cost high quality claims processing. And so then I'm going to go and I'm going to go for a pharmaceutical benefit management. Okay, I want the right drugs, not the wrong drugs. I want the right drugs available at low cost for my people, maybe no cost if they're generics or if they're going to prevent higher uh, costs in the hospital. If I, if I have a drug that's going to keep somebody healthy and out of the hospital, I'm going to make that cheap, right? Blue Cross may not make that cheap. They make that expensive because they have a kickback arrangement with the pharmaceutical manufacturer or the middleman between them and the mars- pharmaceutical manufacturer. So we will just compete for a pharmacy solution that create the formulary that we design and doesn't have any interest in what that formulary is. They don't owe anything to the drug manufacturers or to anyone else to try to push certain drugs on us at certain prices. We will design the formulary. I will often go to a grocery store chain and say, hey, um, you wanna get more volume of people buying milk and produce here? Why don't you give um, on your pharmacy free generics to this employer I've got over here and I'll send all their drug business to you. And so, Grocery chains can be great partners in that respect. And they might make, they might help you build the formulary all by yourself. And if it's a big enough grocery chain in the city, great. You win and your people win. You don't have to have a pharmaceutical benefit manager at all. Um, Or you can use what are called transparent pass through pharmaceutical benefit managers. These are PBMs that promise, you have to be careful, you have to watch them, but these are PBMs that promise not to take kickbacks from any party and that you just pay them a flat fee or a transaction fee. A lot of what we do with each of these types of solutions is rearrange the compensation for this vendor based on meeting our goals. So if you save me money on my drugs, oh, I'm going to pay you X. Or if you only take a flat rate and aren't pushing some secret agenda on me based on other financial incentives you're not telling me about, then I'm going to pay you a little bit more of a flat rate than I might pay someone else. So, and in the end, that's going to save me a ton of money, a ton more money. That's a huge, great investment for an employer. So we do that with the pharmacy. We do that with the, um, the claims processor. We do it with disease management vendor. We do it with the direct primary care vendor. We do it with, um, repricers. So I might hire somebody to negotiate bills in advance or after the fact with a hospital to get them to agree to a lower rate for a surgery that i know is coming up as part of the pre-authorization process. So that's kind of what we do and then all better my company we're sitting in the middle as the quarterback for all these vendors so that the hr department at the client company doesn't have to think about this and doesn't have to worry about it. We do all that work for them.
0: And then the the employees in the situation they wouldn't really know. It wouldn't be any different than any other health plan right because you're kind of taking care of all that. Exactly. You know, it's interesting too because I've talked to pharmacy, you know, ph- many of these organizations and entities you talk about are both the villains and they're also the the heroes in these stories, right? Because you talk to pharmacy benefit managers, they are some of the worst offenders in probably of cronyism, I think, examples, like Express Scripts and um, what CVS, I think, Caremark. And yet there are PBMs that are totally the opposite. I've talked to the people who are kind of like a very small PBM, which I didn't even know existed. And that and I usually wonder why people don't use them more and, or direct primary care, right? You have all these different options. And again, I think it is it is refreshing to see that people are looking to do these things. It It is sad that you have to do all these things to try and make something work. I mean, it almost would seem it'd be simpler if, if maybe the employers weren't involved in the whole process to begin with. But I guess, again, that's the way the system works right now.
1: Yeah, you think about um, you know whenever something's being disrupted. At first, nobody had ever heard of Uber. Uber was operating in one market maybe, and it start the the um, penetration and adoption of these innovations does expand over time. I think right now, probably a single digits number of employers are using these types of plans, what I call unbundled or employer owned plans. Um, but it's spreading it's starting to spread and word is getting out and and that's really encouraging you're right that um you know you can have a good pbm you can have a bad pbm um i'm in the business of benefits advising And my industry, which is basically the broker, benefits broker industry, is a huge part of the problem, a huge villain, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. They market themselves, most traditional brokers market themselves as a buyer's agent, working for the employer to get them the best deal on their plan. But really, they're totally paid by the plans to make recommendations that maximize profits to the carriers. So they're a huge part of the problem. And that's why you know. So I say, hey, I'm a good broker, and <laughs> you can have a good PBM, you can have a good claims processor. So you're right that it's it's really about the motivation and the spirit of what's what's being driven, and also just how the incentives are aligned. Are we all working for the employer, or are we working for someone else secretly?
0: You know, lots of people are have high deductible healthcare plans, and, and we've noticed a huge change. I'm an anesthesiologist full time, and certainly the last 10 years has been a dramatic shift in this, you know, before the strategy, the billing strategy was always, you want to be slow to get your bill out because if you're too fast, people are paying out of pocket before it hits the deductible. And then there's at some point, I don't know, seven, eight years ago where we recognized that if we get a bill out faster, it's much more likely to get paid <laughs> because people are not hitting the deductible anyway. And so you want to be the first to bill in so that you're most likely to get paid. So that has obviously changed over the last couple of years, what do you for pe- most people are facing the paying the bills on their own? So what do you recommend for someone who comes into the, you know, comes into the hospital, maybe not you know on a stretcher where they have a heart attack and they don't have a, a time to review things, but somebody comes in with say abdominal pain and they have time to sort of sort things out. There are ways to, there have got to be ways to protect yourself from all these things that you're talking about: price transparency, predatory pricing, all this kind of stuff that happens in in network out of network.
1: Yes, great question. So first i would say that with respect to the high deductible plans i mean the, what i like to say is the secret superpower of healthcare that is really the, it is secret and it is super powerful is that the only way to spend less on healthcare is to provide more generous benefits so if you want someone to do something you can't make it expensive <laughs> so if you want people to get colonoscopies if you want people to see their primary care provider, if you want people to take their medications, those things need to be either free or ex- almost free. So um, we we are seeing, you know, the type of plans I always build are plans that have low or no deductible, um, especially if people use high value care and high value providers. So um, we we try to steer them in that way and create incentives so that if they do it the right way, if they're in, engaging in all the things that are gonna keep them healthy, then we make those things free. Um, so that's sort of the institutional way to handle, the structural way to handle the problem you're talking about. But, but most people don't have that solution yet in their lives. And so at the individual yeah. level, when you're in the ER, um, I like to use what's called a battlefield consent form. And what I really mean is I write on a napkin or a piece of paper (laughs) um, this sentence, I consent to be treated for any appropriate treatment to be reimbursed at no more than 1.5 times the rate of Medicare. Um, And actually in the plans that that I build it all better, we, we put that sentence on people's ID cards. Um, so that the hospital can't say that they never saw it or that they don't have a copy of it because they do. And they, they agreed to, they agreed to it when they admitted the patient. Because um, right now what, what happens when you're in the ER and you know this, of course, as an anesthesiologist, um, people go in and you guys are always coming at us with our consent with consent forms, right? right before we yes. go under. And so um, what happens is people are given one form and they're told by the clerk or whoever's giving it to them, Oh, this is just to consent to treat. This is just said that we're allowed to treat you. Just sign right here. Don't look. Don't read. Um, And so people think, oh, well, of course I consent to be treated. That's why I'm here. Duh. So they sign. What it really is, is it's a combination form of two different, very different questions. (laughs) One is, do you consent to be treated? Answer usually, almost always, Yes. Two, do you consent to be billed at any rate that we want to, that we're going to jack up as high as we can? And so, but they put all into one form and they don't even tell you about the second question. And they just want you to sign on the dotted line for both questions, yes. Um, so the way, so using the battlefield consent sentence, really, and um, there are ways to have this sentence with you. You don't have to remember what I say now, but using the battlefield consent is a way to answer both questions in a way that's not going to harm you financially. You can get, you can download the battlefield consent form or take a picture of it on a website called quizify, um, quizify two z um, one F.com. And they do a great job there and helping employers and patients, you know, avoid financial abuse.
0: And just to, um, well, I guess, uh, you know, we don't like the Medicare rate as anesthesiologists, so maybe two and a half times for anesthesia services, but... <laughs> uh, you can
1: negotiate. I'm in your, I'm in your waiting room, right? right. You can negotiate. I'm about to go under. <laughs> I'm still conscious.
0: Um, so I wanted to pivot to COVID because you are an epidemiologist, and I wanted to ask you some questions about, about what's going on. Uh, um, You're very experienced with bureaucracy, both the federal and state. You've dealt with it all the time. And so... My general impression when looking at this now from we'll say it starts back in February. We're recording this on January fourth of twenty twenty one. And about nine, ten months ago, I I feel like this especially the C D C and the FDA have really failed our country when it comes to the to the the pandemic. I don't even want to talk about political leaders because they sort of do what they always do. And so I'm not gonna I, I won't hold them in high esteem or low at this point, but um, you know, we had conflicting messages from the, from the organizations from the start. Wear masks, don't wear masks. Uh, you can't use these tests. Oh, now you better use whatever tests you can get. We have antigen tests that were developed right away that were oral, that were fairly effective, that were, have been blocked until I think just now. I mean, it's been almost 10 months. They were available, or they could at least be produced. We had people who were doing everything they could to produce PPE, and the FDA said, you can't do that because you're not authorized. You have to fill out 27 forms, and people said, there's no point distilleries that were now fined, that now their fines have been reversed for for trying to make hand sanitizer, trying, you know, people just trying to do stuff to, to, to fill holes. And I feel like our bureaucracy is designed to prevent any, any reasonable solutions. Do you agree with that assessment? And then is there any way, that, are there any like specific things that would fix this? Or is this just kind of the system we have and we just kind of stuck with it?
1: I think that, you know, when I was... um a young Hill staffer, and I was in charge of the budget of CDC. <laughs> for for reasons unknown to me, someone put me in charge of this. Um, I remember thinking, you know, CDC is totally siloed, and it was my favorite agency. Of all the agencies, and I used to say, I'll deny this, but CDC is my favorite agency, because I really believed that they were the absolute experts who were putting on like the BL4 suits and going in quarantining towns and saving lives. They were running into Ebola when everyone was running away and that they were these you know, virus hunters. That's, I, that's why I went to public health school. That's what I wanted to do with my life was control infectious disease, just like the CDC. And I thought they were the experts. And what I think we've learned is that bureaucracy destroys science and it destroys pragmatism and it destroys common sense. And that doesn't mean that people in the bureaucracy don't have common sense and don't know science, or whatever, but that the bureaucracy alone destroys rational action. <laughs> and you think <laughs> about the DMB, which is basically, you know, the bureaucracy most of us are most familiar with. Right. And how it can just, you know, it doesn't matter if you're making a point as to why you don't have what they think you need. It doesn't matter. Their job is X and it's so huge that they can only do their little job. And that's what I've seen a lot at CDC, but especially at FDA, unfortunately. Um, I think it's almost even worse there. But you know, where, where FDA has the mission, their job is to protect you from yourself, I guess. Protect you from your own judgment. <laughs> we have to save you from unsafe stuff that's going to kill you. Even if you want it, you're too dumb to know better. We're going to protect you. And that risk aversion has no place in a pandemic. <laughs> and we've seen that. and and CDC isn't quite as bad just culturally around that because FDA's mission is safety, right? right but right. Um, CDC isn't quite as bad like that, but they um, they have a mission, which is, you know, we are going to stop disease transmission. And you know, I had a lot of people ask me, because I used to work for President Trump, and I would get a lot of media outlets that were trying to get me to criticize President Trump. And But Katie, don't you think that President Trump screwed it up in X way or that way? And I would say, listen, our elected officials are being asked in this situation to weigh impossible trade-offs. And if you wanted to ask me, Katie, as a public health official, um, or the CDC director or the FDA, director. How do we stop a pandemic? I can tell you how to stop a pandemic. I can give you, elected official, perfectly effective advice as to how to stop an infectious disease, and we will control it. And yeah, fine. Of course, I'm going to destroy the economy and everyone's mental health. And I'm going to, you know, but I will stop, like, if nobody leaves their house ever again, we will stop it. So that's one extreme. And then, but it's, you know, people who criticize elected officials for not following the science and not listening to the scientists. But we have one role, and the official has to think about the trade-offs. And we don't have to do that. that. You know, we have the luxury of just having to control a disease. And right. so, as they would acquire more knowledge, they're in the business of telling people what to do. These bureaucracies, right? They they are the experts and they're the authorities. And so they're used to having the answers. And about most things that they work on, we do have the answers. I mean, they work on obesity and they work on. Um, rickettsial diseases and tick-borne diseases and we have a lot of answers about this influenza we have a lot of answers ebola lots of answers and even in things that we don't know much about we still have a lot more answers than we had about covid and yet people are required to come out with authoritative recommendations and so they just do their best and rather than saying man we don't know but listen we wear masks and surgery for a reason so masks surely have some you know,
0: there's right. some,
1: there's probably something helpful there, but we don't know. And we don't know how much. And you need to think about like, does wearing a mask all day have problems for you in some other way and make your own best judgment? Their job in a situation like this, the public health establishment, their job is to provide the absolute most honest, comprehensive information so that freeborn citizens like you and me can take that information and make our own trade-offs. And on my trade-off for my risk that I'm willing to take based on my life and my family may be different than a small business restaurant owner who has to feed their family by keeping their restaurant open. And their risk judgment and the judgment of their minimum wage employees may be different than mine or yours or the CDC directors or Dr. Fauci's. And so it's really important that government allows people the freedom to make those risk assessments and provides um, the local officials all the information that's possible. I do think that um, what we've seen here is a disgusting display of the lack of public health data infrastructure, which has been, I think, perhaps the most underreported failure of the bureaucracies, in that, you know, CDC in this country does not control public health disease control at the local level. You know, they're just not in charge. They give advice, that's that's really all they do. And they take um, statistical reports from those local and state officials so that they can aggregate it for everybody else. That's all they're supposed to do. We're asking them to tell localities what they should do. And that's just not their job. Simultaneously, their job, which is to, you know, be helpful to those decision makers at the local level, requires good information and these guys you know they don't have any reporting systems they don't have any surveillance systems so it seems to me that the one of the most important lessons that really isn't talked about is not very sexy but that we really need to focus on in the future is cdc needs to provide public health surveillance systems to every locality and state in america (laughs) and it needs to have standardized data fields and that's just the end of it so that we can have real-time reporting that's consistent with the digital world we live in.
0: And that's, you know, oftentimes an argument made for a single payer system, right? Like if we have a system that's totally nationalized, it's all going to be much easier to date it. But I can tell you as dealing with government payers that having the government in charge of everything doesn't necessarily make it much better. And so that does not necessarily mean that it would be the case.
1: I think Uh, it provides information to the decision makers. I don't want the decision makers to be in Washington, but the decision makers need to have absolute real time data. And yeah. they need to have their own real-time data, which they don't even have.
0: Right. And I feel like this whole, from the very beginning, uh, not only did we have d- redefining our objectives, you know, flatten the curve, then it's, we don't want any disease. Now we want to keep the hospitals, whatever, you know, that it sort of like was ambiguous, moved around. And, and I understand in the, you know, evolving pandemic, you don't really know what, you don't know what you're facing. So that's understandable that people have different ideas in different states and localities, um, but so much throughout this process i feel like public health officials the people who you rely on for authoritative you know information were unwilling to say they didn't know right uh, and and because of that as soon as they admit that you know well we didn't really know we just kind of guessed or uh, you know we knew herd media really had to be 90% but now it's uh, we were saying 70 because we didn't think we would actually buy all these sorts of things, you already have a general distrust of large institutions from the United States. and I imagine this pretty much worldwide. Now we have a free flow of information. It just, it makes it almost impossible that once you get to the truth, whatever that might be, that no one was, at that point, no one believes it, right? And so you, you erode what little trust you have right from the start and you never, and you just can't get that back. And I feel like that's really a lot of what we're sort of fighting.
1: Exactly right. And that's what I mean when I was saying, you know, the CDC thinks that their job is to be authoritative to be the authorities no their their job is to convey truthful information <laughs> that's it
0: right yeah and and the, the discussions then what we what happens happens up happening is i think we don't end up having a discussion about trade-offs. like i think you know the cdc says well you have to do this or you know the FDA, fauci comes out and says you absolutely do this you don't do this you're basically you know subjecting 2 million people to die or whatever it might be that day uh you've since he's not you know, say, well, we think or we, we're not sure there's some sort of degree of uncertainty that now you, you basically eliminate any discussion of should schools be open? What's the cost of having schools not open with kids lose? you know, all these huge, giant metropolitan areas with children who aren't going to school. I mean, for, it's like 15, 16 months. There are costs to that. I'm not saying what's done is absolutely wrong. Maybe this is the right thing, but we're not we're not even having those conversations, which is just which the strange thing about this whole process, I think.
1: And I do think that, you know, public health officials are not equipped to to make those trade-offs and to make recommendations about those trade-offs. That's just not what we learn in public health school. <laughs> so, um, you know, we learn, here's how you interrupt transmission of an infectious disease. And I can perfectly interrupt that transmission if I perfectly lock you down. But that doesn't tell me that I should do that or when I should do that. And so um, that's why we have elected officials. It's their job to also talk to these other experts over here, like child psychiatrists and teachers and economists and small business owners. Right? There's all these other experts on you know the public good that need to be uh, heard. And and so this this bizarre uh, fixation on the public health community as the source of all truth in COVID, I think, is really dysfunctional. And and if instead the public health community were focused on. Here's what we know. Here's what we know about the incubation period. Here's what we know about how distant, socially distanced have to be. Here's what we know about um, transmission with masks, without masks. Um, you know, with gloves, without gloves, fomites, doorknobs. Here's what we know about airborne droplets. Right. That way, a restaurant owner can say, "Okay, I have to stay open in order to live." And so I'm going to stay open, but I'm going to do it safely because I have all the all the useful, truthful information and it's not complete. It's the best that anyone can do, but I have everything that there is to be known so that I can organize my restaurant and keep people safe and protect our other priorities too.
0: Yeah, and to that point, you if you're someone who is, at risk or whatever you can make the determination exactly. that is an unsafe place to go. You walk and you're like, "Yeah, what do you have? Do updated ventilations? Whatever. You can ask all those questions. Right. And right. now you've, you've sort of removed of
1: people it. can make their own decisions and then, and say about where they're going to go, where they're not, should I go to church? Should I go to school? I don't know. Should I go to work? They can make those decisions without forcing the rest of society to sort of help them make that decision and, and make it with them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is crazy.
0: Right. You've removed agency from all these people to ability to make decisions. You know, when you look at the, the curves from mask mandates or lockdowns or whatever level of, you know, whatever you want to call it, I guess, I don't feel like you see a whole lot of difference between either f- between countries or, um, or and then you like, you look at, say, a good example is like Australia and the United States. Well, Australia did a great job. United States didn't is sort of the, the word. And then you look at the mobility data and they're identical. I mean, outside of like a week difference in timing they're almost the same and so you you i don't know i mean it's just it, it's hard to to feel like there's there's one policy that seems to be vastly superior uh within nations it seems like there there's you look at the different states and there doesn't seem to be much difference uh just maybe the timing but it seems like everything kind of happens to every community at least once is sort of where we are now i think
1: Yeah, I think we are seeing that, you know, we don't have randomized control trials of uh, we're going to assign one state to do this intervention to figure out the exact incremental impact of mask wearing compared to other types of lockdown measures, right? Like that's kind of what we need. But of course, we can't do that. We can't micromanage everybody that way. And so we have a bunch of, um, you know, Couch scientists that are saying, oh, well, I'm looking at these curves and I'm deducing X. And even the scientists can't deduce X from the curves. And I think you're right. When you have a respiratory disease, I mean, it's basically a doomsday scenario. I mean, thank God the COVID is not more lethal than than it is because this is every epidemiologist doomsday scenario, global respiratory disease that we cannot stop. Like we can't stop no matter what we do. And um, I mean, we frankly we we could stop it if we like i said earlier if we you know wanted people to die in their houses and you know right yeah, but, yeah. right but um not send ambulances and not have deliver food or anything but um we this is a situation where we're just not seeing interventions working in any predictable way and so, of course, the other side of this argument is always that, well, you don't know how much worse that curve would have been, right? Um, and that's true. We don't, um, but that's not how we do science. <laughs> like We don't just speculate that our interventions are working because, you know, you, you don't prove a negative w- outside of a controlled experiment. You can in a controlled experiment, right, but right. we're not doing that. And so I think you're right. I'm not seeing any predictable predictable patterns associated with certain bundles of interventions versus others. It all looks the same to me too. Yeah.
0: And, and I think, you know, it, it is, I think reasonable for people to say, well, you look at China and China shut it down in two months, you know, they're welding people into their houses. They're doing all the things that it would never be tolerated in a free society. I think, um, we hope. yeah, we hope. Right. Uh, and, and then, but then I think, you know, we are, in that, for that reason, we we're probably more susceptible to this sort of thing, right? Because we expect to have mobility, we expect to travel. You know, we can close our borders, but heck, you can travel all over the country. I mean, this is a gigantic country, right? I mean, it, you you're not even if you started, stopped at the state borders, it really probably would not make that much of a difference. And so we expect that level of movement. And I think because we have, we're used to the movement, we we're, we're used to the free spread of information and ideas and people and capital. It makes us our economy so strong and our ability to innovate and create a vaccine in eight months. I mean, actually, it was probably pretty much sooner had the FDA allowed us to use it right away, right? I mean, if we wanted to, right? It was pretty much ready. And so in that case, you know, it, it is our somewhat of our weakness right now because we have the mobility that causes us to be more susceptible, but it is also our great strength that puts us in a position to solve all these problems real quickly, too, if we can just figure out the distribution issues.
1: Yes, that is exactly right. I, I was doing again multiple interviews where people were trying to. I, w- I was on British media, a lot of British media, and they were you know trying to get me to criticize the president, and um, and they would say, but why haven't why hasn't the national government done X or Y? And you could have you know you're so much worse than us because of X, and and I would say the exact same thing. Like let me educate you about the federalism system that we have. Yeah. Um, and it's many, many wonderful virtues, right? But there are trade-offs as in everything. And the trade-offs to federalism is that we don't get to dictate to a local mayor from the CDC what they're gonna do about their disease data, what kind of testing they're gonna use or how they're gonna roll out the vaccine. And um, and there is a ton of beauty in that in, in terms of all the free-flowing ideas and people and capital that you mentioned, but there are trade-offs and, you know, mass population control when you need it (laughs) Where's a good dictator when you need one but like we just don't get that here in america and it's not going to happen and as a result this is a cost i believe that historically americans have been willing to pay you know sort of the cost of freedom is worth it but it's really making a lot of people i think i'm kind of scared by how many people are really questioning those fundamental trade-off uh decisions that we've made over the centuries
0: yeah well and i look at the, the thought that, well, if you had one person making decisions in D.C. and they just made the right decisions, right, uh, that's assuming that the country's homogenous, we have similar densities, we have similar everything, right? And if there's anything that should be obvious to everyone is that this, this is a regional epidemic, a, a collection of regional epidemics that sort of move around, right? And so we had in Michigan, as an example, we had Detroit got hit really hard early in April. And, and we were, I'm in the west side of the state, and so we just kept waiting for it to come. Never came. I mean, just we close everything down we just uh, our governor closed the entire state down and it basically just hit southeast Michigan. And then now all of a sudden in November, it hits the rest of the state. So the actually even the top down approach, even at a smaller level in a state level, was still the wrong approach. Right. The smart approach would have been just to kind of close down the areas where it's uh, affecting you regionally, as opposed to just shutting everything down sort of as a grand gesture. I can only imagine if you were the president, you said, well, we're just going to close the entire country down it wouldn't make any sense at all because there'd be some places that would, you know, it would be 18 months before it hits them or whatever. I, I, I think, uh, it, or what if you had a person who made the wrong decision, then you'd have the one top dumped. The, the nice and better system is that, you know, people can make the right decision for wrong decision. Hopefully you'd recognize that someone's doing it the right way and you do it differently. Right. That's, that'd be the, the strength of this system.
1: Yeah. And I do think that, um, you know this idea that if only our you know masters were smarter and we're making better decisions you know there is nobody who cares more about your life and livelihood than you so there is nobody better equipped to weigh those trade-offs for you certainly not someone at your town council is not even they are as good as you at doing this and so Certainly not your governor, and definitely not the president or Dr. Fauci. So um, that is why I think the federal government has got to be primarily in a in crisis like this in the information business and trust the wisdom and the judgment of its citizens. You know, I just think we have a fundamental mistrust of them, and we're not willing to pay the cost for citizens who make choices we wouldn't make, right? And there are trade-offs to freedom, but freedom is really the best way compared to all the other options.
0: Yeah, His rights Democracy is a terrible system of government, but it's just better than all the rest, right? So
1: exactly. The
0: Churchill's exactly. quote or something. Um, yes, yes.
1: Capitalism, uh, he said
0: that enough. Yeah. With, uh, with the distribution of the vaccine with the last question about this, so the federal government is marginally involved. I mean, they kind of sort of vaguely give, just distributed like, you know, so many to each state. And the states are up to, it's up to the states to distribute them. I don't think the federal government, my understanding is they don't, dictate who gets it. They have recommendations for phases, but the states can kind of do whatever they want. Uh, do you see this as a problem right now? I mean, I know other countries are like kind of thumbing their nose at us or something like that. It, it, or do you think this is just kind of that? I mean, it's a kind of a miracle that we even have vaccine right now. I didn't think there was any chance we would have one at this point. Or, it, you know, what do you think the sort of the situation is there with, our, with the distribution of the vaccine?
1: Yeah, so I, I do think that the federal government can provide recommendations and guidelines um, to elected officials at the state and local levels. And um, they were, I think, probably a little late to do that in this process. Um, Their guidelines were were late in the process so that the states had to kind of come up with their own plans by themselves. Um, You know, I live in a state where there's not a rational plan for vaccinating the most (laughs) at-risk people first. which I find maddening because my parents live here too, and I think everyone is finds maddening because their parents live here, um, and so th- that's a problem. But if you're in a, a smart state, I think that's doing it better. Then you're lucky, and and that is just the really tragic downside of our system, of our federal system. So I I do think that the federal government could have given um, more epidemiologically sound uh, guidelines than no guidelines for three weeks. Um, so that's not good. And, uh, you know, these are the, f- the fundamental things that these bureaucracies are failing us at, you know, they're so busy trying to get things just exactly right, or they're focused on the wrong thing, because they're in their own little lanes and silos that they're missing the big picture, like we are shipping hundreds of millions <laughs> A million. of doses, tell people what to do, give people advice. Um, what's the best advice for this? And, but I do think that some responsibility has to be on state and locals. You look at your average local health department, they're not complete dummies. I mean, why? What makes them so much stupider than, you know, experts at the CDC? Like, this is not rocket science that we're going to give an intervention to the people who are most at risk. So, I don't absolve these localities and states from figuring this out themselves, too. You don't need a bureaucrat in DC to tell you that what seems to me to be kind of obvious.
0: Yeah, and I think the one thing we don't take into account is it, this is a very complicated thing to do, right? It's uh, when you're trying to vaccinate everybody at the same time, I mean, <laughs> even if you had all the doses available, just logistically, just try and imagine how you set up the to make sure they get the dose, and then three weeks later get another dose or four weeks. Uh, it's I talked to my dad who's in in Florida, and you know every county's different there, and if you're over 65, I think they say you can come get it, but some place you go wait in line, some place you try and make. Appointments ahead of time. No way, really, is that good because there's just no way good way of doing it. There's only so much, so many hours in the day. There's so many people. It's just a really, really hard problem to solve. And I don't know that eight years of planning would have made it any better to try to launch something in you know two weeks. <laughs> It'd be impossible. Right.
1: I mean, I we do have pandemic flu plans that you know are supposed to have been thinking through this. I mean, I, I worked a little bit on that when I was still in government. We, we had plans for mass deployment of countermeasures like vaccines. I don't know. Those plans are not being carried out. <laughs> we involved, you know, the military and logistics centers that they set up. Um, so I think because we've decided to go through the typical public health approach, which is we're, we're letting states and locals do it. We're not really treating it like a national deployment of a countermeasure um, the way we would if, you know, like a dirty bomb had gone off or a smallpox epidemic had been launched on us by, um, China, which is not too far off from what the truth is. But, um, I, I just think you're right to your point. This is hard. Nobody knows how to do it. Nobody's ever done it before and it's going to be done a zillion different ways. And we will learn a lot from the variety later when we're analyzing it all.
0: We'll we'll be ready for the next pandemic in a hundred years from now. We'll get it right then. (laughs) Well, uh, Katie Tolento, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I appreciate it. If people want to find out more about you, you're writing, obviously, you're in media all the time talking to, to the Brits, apparently. How do they find more about you?
1: Um, yeah, they can find me at allbetter.health. Allbetter.health is my company, and um, you can reach me there in a number of ways. You can download a free chapter or free books on for employers about how to do the unbundled plans and contact us. And we're happy to help.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Before we go, just a reminder to reach out to John McCarthy and his team at Physician Tax Advisors before you set out to handle your taxes this year. Taxes are complicated enough, so leave it to the professionals. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash CPA to get help today. And thanks again to Katie Talento for today's show.
1: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.